Dedication, Preface, and Chapter 1 of The Land of Little Rain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Land of Little Rain by Mary Hunter Austin. Dedication to Eve, the Comfortess of Unsuccess. Preface I confess a great liking for the Indian fashion of name-giving. Every man, known by that phrase which best expresses him, to whoso names him. Thus he may be mighty hunter, or man afraid of a bear, according as he is called by friend or enemy, and scarface to those who knew him by the eyes grasp only. No other fashion, I think, sets so well with the various natures that inhabit in us, and if you agree with me, you will understand why so few names are written here as they appear in the geography. For if I love a lake known by the name of the man who discovered it, which endears itself by reason of the close-locked pines it nourishes about its borders, you may look in my account to find it so described. But if the Indians have been there before me, you shall have their name, which is always beautifully fit and does not originate in the poor human desire for perpetuity. Nevertheless, there are certain peaks, canyons, and clear meadow spaces which are above all compassing of words, and have a certain fame as of the nobly great to whom we give no familiar names. Guided by these, you may reach my country, and find, or not find, according as it lieth in you, much that is set down here, and more. The earth is no wanton to give up all her best to every comer, but keeps a sweet, separate intimacy for each. But if you do not find it all as I write, think me not less dependable, nor yourself less clever. There is a sort of pretense allowed in matters of the heart, as one should say by way of illustration, I know a man who, and so give up his dearest experience without betrayal. And I am in no mind to direct you to delectable places towards which you will hold yourself less tenderly than I. So by this fashion of naming, I keep faith with the land, and annex to my own estate a very great territory to which none has a surer title. The country where you may have sight and touch of that which is written lies between the high Sierras, south from Yosemite, east and south over a very great assemblage of broken ranges beyond Death Valley, and on, illimitably, into the Mojave Desert. You may come into the borders of it from the south by a stage journey that has the effect of involving a great lapse of time, or from the north by rail, dropping out of the overland route at Reno. The best of all ways is over the Sierra Passes by pack and trail, seeing and believing. But the real heart and core of the country are not to be come at in a month's vacation. One must summer and winter with the land, and wait its occasions. Pine woods that take two and three seasons to the ripening of cones, roots that lie in the sand seven years awaiting a growing rain, 
firs that grow fifty years before flowering. These do not scrape acquaintance. But if ever you come beyond the borders, as far as the town that lies in a hill dimple at the foot of Kearsarge, never leave it until you have knocked at the door of the brown house under the willow tree at the end of the village street. And there you shall have such news of the land, of its trails, and what is astir in them, as one lover of it can give to another. CHAPTER One: THE LAND OF LITTLE RAIN East away from the Sierras, south from Panamint and Amargosa, east and south many an uncounted mile, is the country of lost borders. Ute, Paiute, Mojave, and Shoshone inhabit its frontiers, and as far into the heart of it as a man dare go. Not the law, but the land, sets the limit. Desert is the name it wears upon the maps, but the Indians is the better word. Desert is a loose term that indicates land that supports no man. Whether the land can be bitted and broken to that purpose is not proven. Void of life it never is, however dry the air and villainous the soil. This is the nature of that country. There are hills, rounded, blunt, burned, squeezed up out of chaos, chrome and vermilion painted, aspiring to the snow line. Between the hills lie high, level-looking plains full of intolerable sun-glare or narrow valleys drowned in a blue haze. The hill surface is streaked with ash-drift and black, unweathered lava flows. After rains, water accumulates in the hollows of small, closed valleys, and evaporating, leaves hard, dry levels of pure desertness that get the local name of dry lakes. Where the mountains are steep and the rains heavy, the pool is never quite dry, but dark and bitter, rimmed about with the efflorescence of alkaline deposits. A thin crust of it lies along the marsh over the vegetating area, which has neither beauty nor freshness. In the broad wastes open to the wind, the sand drifts in hummocks about the stubby shrubs, and between them the soil shows saline traces. The sculpture of the hills here is more wind than water work, though the quick storms do sometimes scar them past many a year's redeeming. In all the western desert edges there are essays in miniature at the famed terrible Grand Canyon, to which, if you keep on long enough in this country, you will come at last. Since this is a hill country, one expects to find springs, but not to depend upon them. For when found, they are often brackish and unwholesome, or maddening slow dribbles in a thirsty soil. Here you find the hot sink of Death Valley, or high rolling districts where the air has always a tang of frost. Here are the long, heavy winds and breathless calms on the tilted mesas, where dust devils dance, whirling up into a wide, pale sky. Here you have no rain when all the earth cries for it, or quick downpours called cloudbursts for violence. A land of lost rivers with little in it to love, yet a land that once visited must be come back to inevitably. If it were not so, 
there would be little told of it. This is the country of three seasons. From June on to November it lies hot, still and unbearable, sick with violent, unrelieving storms. Then on until April, chill, quiescent, drinking its scant rain and scanter snows. From April to the hot season again, blossoming, radiant, and seductive. These months are only approximate. Later or earlier the rain-laden wind may drift up the water gate of the Colorado from the Gulf, and the land sets its seasons by the rain. The desert floras shame us with their cheerful adaptations to the seasonal limitations. Their whole duty is to flower and fruit, and they do it hardly, or with tropical luxuriance, as the rain admits. It is recorded in the report of the Death Valley Expedition that, after a year of abundant rains on the Colorado Desert, was found a specimen of amaranthus ten feet high. A year later, the same species in the same place matured in the drought at four inches. One hopes the land may breed like qualities in her human offspring, not tritely to try, but to do. Seldom does the desert herb attain the full stature of the type. Extreme aridity and extreme altitude have the same dwarfing effect, so that we find in the high Sierras and in Death Valley related species in miniature that reach a comely growth in mean temperatures. Very fertile are the desert plants in expedience to prevent evaporation, turning their foliage edgewise toward the sun, growing silky hairs, exuding viscid gum. The wind, which has a long sweep, harries and helps them. It rolls up dunes about the stocky stems, encompassing and protective, and above the dunes, which may be, as with the mesquite, three times as high as a man, the blossoming twigs flourish and bear fruit. There are many areas in the desert where drinkable water lies within a few feet of the surface, indicated by the mesquite and the bunch grass, Sporobolus aeroides. It is this nearness of unimagined help that makes the tragedy of desert deaths. It is related that the final breakdown of that hapless party that gave Death Valley its forbidding name occurred in a locality where shallow wells would have saved them. But how were they to know that? Properly equipped, it is possible to go safely across that ghastly sink. Yet every year it takes its toll of death, and yet men find there sun-dried mummies of whom no trace or recollection is preserved. To underestimate one's thirst, to pass a given landmark to the right or left, to find a dry spring where one looked for running water, there is no help for any of these things. Along springs and sunken watercourses, one is surprised to find such water-loving plants as grow widely in moist ground. But the true desert breeds its own kind, each in its particular habitat. The angle of the slope, the frontage of a hill, the structure of the soil determines the plant. South-looking hills are nearly bare, and the lower tree line higher here by a thousand feet. Canyons running east and west will have one wall naked and one clothed. 
Around dry lakes and marshes, the herbage preserves a set and orderly arrangement. Most species have well-defined areas of growth, the best index the voiceless land can give the traveler of his whereabouts. If you have any doubt about it, know that the desert begins with the creosote. This immortal shrub spreads down into Death Valley and up to the lower timberline, odorous and medicinal, as you might guess from the name, wand-like with shining fretted foliage. Its vivid green is grateful to the eye in a wilderness of gray and greenish-white shrubs. In the spring it exudes a resinous gum which the Indians of those parts know how to use with pulverized rock for cementing arrow points to shafts. Trust Indians not to miss any virtues of the plant world. Nothing the desert produces expresses it better than the unhappy growth of the tree yuccas, tormented thin forests of it stalked drearily in the high mesas, particularly in that triangular slip that fans out eastward from the meeting of the Sierras and coastwise hills, where the first swings across the southern end of the San Joaquin Valley. The yucca bristles with bayonet-pointed leaves, dull green, growing shaggy with age, tipped with panicles of fetid greenish bloom. After death, which is slow, the ghostly hollow network of its woody skeleton, with hardly power to rot, makes the moonlight fearful. Before the yucca has come to flower, while yet its bloom is a creamy cone-shaped bud of the size of a small cabbage, full of sugary sap, the Indians twist it deftly out of its fence of daggers and roast it for their own delectation. So it is that in those parts where man inhabits, one sees young plants of yucca arboriensis infrequently. Other yuccas, cacti, low herbs, a thousand sorts, one finds journeying east from the coastwise hills. There is neither poverty of soil nor species to account for the sparseness of desert growth, but simply that each plant requires more room. So much earth must be preempted to extract so much moisture. The real struggle for existence, the real brain of the plant, is underground. Above, there is room for a rounded, perfect growth. In Death Valley, reputed the very core of desolation, are nearly two hundred identified species. Above the lower tree line, which is also the snow line, mapped out abruptly by the sun, one finds spreading growth of pinion, juniper, branched nearly to the ground, lilac and sage and scattering white pines. There is no special preponderance of self-fertilized or wind-fertilized plants, but everywhere the demand for and evidence of insect life. Now, where there are seeds and insects, there will be birds and small mammals, and where these are will come the slinking, sharp-toothed kind that prey on them. Go as far as you dare in the heart of a lonely land, you cannot go so far that life and death are not before you. Painted lizards slip in and out of rock crevices and pant on the white-hot sands. Birds, hummingbirds even, nest in the cactus scrub. Woodpeckers befriend the demoniac yuccas. 
Out of the stark treeless waste rings the music of the night-singing mockingbird. If it be summer and the sun well down, there will be a burrowing owl to call. Strange, furry, tricksy things dart across the open places, or sit motionless in the conning towers of the creosote. The poet may have named all the birds without a gun, but not the fairy-footed, ground-inhabiting, furtive, small folk of the rainless regions. They are too many and too swift. How many you would not believe without seeing the footprint tracings in the sand. They are nearly all night workers, finding the days too hot and white. In mid-desert, where there are no cattle, there are no birds of carrion. But if you go far in that direction, the chances are that you will find yourself shadowed by their tilted wings. Nothing so large as a man can move unspied upon in that country, and they know well how the land deals with strangers. There are hints to be had here of the way in which a land forces new habits on its dwellers. The quick increase of suns at the end of spring sometimes overtakes birds in their nesting and effects a reversal of the ordinary manner of incubation. It becomes necessary to keep eggs cool rather than warm. One hot, stifling spring in the little antelope, I had occasion to pass and repass frequently the nest of a pair of meadowlarks, located unhappily in the shelter of a very slender weed. I never caught them sitting except near night, but at midday they stood or drooped above it, half fainting with pitifully parted bills between their treasure and the sun. Sometimes both of them together with wings spread and half lifted continued a spot of shade in a temperature that constrained me at last in a fellow feeling to spare them a bit of canvas for permanent shelter. There was a fence in that country, shutting in a cattle range, and along its fifteen miles of posts one could be sure of finding a bird or two in every strip of shadow, sometimes the sparrow and the hawk, with wings trailed and beaks parted, drooping in the white truce of noon. If one is inclined to wonder at first how so many dwellers came to be in the loneliest land that ever came out of God's hands, what they do there and why stay, one does not wonder so much after having lived there. None other than this long brown land lays such a hold on the affections. The rainbow hills, the tender bluish mists, the luminous radiance of the spring have the lotus charm. They trick the sense of time, so that once inhabiting there you always mean to go away, without quite realizing that you have not done it. Men who have lived there, miners and cattlemen, will tell you this, not so fluently, but emphatically, cursing the land and going back to it. For one thing, there is the divinest, cleanest air to be breathed anywhere in God's world. Some day the world will understand that, and the little oases on the windy tops of hills will harbor for healing its ailing, house-weary broods. There is promise there of great wealth in ores and earths, which is no wealth by reason of being so far removed from water and workable conditions, but men are bewitched by it and 
tempted to try the impossible. You should hear Salty Williams tell how he used to drive 18 and 20 mule teams from the Borax Marsh to Mojave, 90 miles, with a trail wagon full of water barrels. Hot days, the mules would go so mad for drink that the clank of the water bucket set them into an uproar of hideous maimed noises and a tangle of harness chains, while Salty would sit on the high seat with the sun glare heavy in his eyes, dealing out curses of pacification in a level, uninterested voice, until the clamor fell off from sheer exhaustion. There was a line of shallow graves along that road. They used to count on dropping a man or two of every new gang of coolies brought out in the hot season. But when he lost his swamper, smitten without warning at the noon halt, Salty quit his job. He said it was too dern hot. The swamper he buried by the way with stones upon him to keep the coyotes from digging him up. And seven years later, I read the penciled lines on the pine headboard, still bright and unweathered. But before that, driving up on the Mojave stage, I met Salty again, crossing Indian wells, his face from the high seat, tanned and ruddy as a harvest moon, looming through the golden dust above his eighteen mules. The land had called him. The palpable sense of mystery in the desert air breeds fables, chiefly of lost treasure. Somewhere within its stark borders, if one believes report, is a hill strewn with nuggets, one seamed with virgin silver, an old clayey waterbed where Indians scooped up earth to make cooking pots and shaped them reeking with grains of pure gold old miners drifting about the desert edges, weathered into the semblance of the tawny hills, will tell you tales like these convincingly. After a little sojourn in that land, you will believe them on their own account. It is a question whether it is not better to be bitten by the little horned snake of the desert that goes sidewise and strikes without coiling, than by the tradition of a lost mine. And yet, and yet is it not perhaps to satisfy expectation that one falls into the tragic key in writing of desertness? The more you wish of it, the more you get, and in the meantime lose much of pleasantness. In that country which begins at the foot of the east slope of the Sierras and spreads out by less and less lofty hill ranges toward the great basin, it is possible to live with great zest to have red blood and delicate joys, to pass and repass about one's daily performance an area that would make an Atlantic seaboard state, and that with no peril, and, according to our way of thought, no particular difficulty. At any rate, it was not people who went into the desert merely to write it up, who invented the fabled Hasayampa, of whose waters, if any drink, they can no more see fact as naked fact, but all radiant with the color of romance. I, who must have drunk of it in my twice seven years' wanderings, am assured that it is worth while. For all the toll the desert takes of a man, it gives compensations, deep breaths, deep sleep, and the communion of the stars. 
it comes upon one with new force in the pauses of the night that the chaldeans were a desert-bred people it is hard to escape the sense of mastery as the stars move in the wide clear heavens to risings and settings unobscured they look large and near and palpitant as if they moved on some stately service not needful to declare wheeling to their stations in the sky they make the poor world fret of no account of no account you who lie out there watching nor the lean coyote that stands off in the scrub from you and howls and howls end of chapter one